Start with offering a short reading. This is from the the Anguttara Nikaya numerical discourses. It's on volition, chitana, which is one of the primary uh, features of sankara. I was talking about today. It's the activation, the ways of being activated. That's a very uh, significant feature of what Sankara is about. Mm. <clears throat> so this is from the Book of the Nines, the second sutta. Because for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret, no volition need be exerted. Let joy arise in me. It is natural that joy arises in one without regret. For one who is joyful, no volition need be exerted. Let rapture arise in me. It is natural that rapture arises in one who is joyful. For a one with a rapturous mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body be tranquil. It is natural that the body of one with a rapturous mind is tranquil. For one tranquil in body, no volition need be exerted. Let me feel pleasure. It is natural that one tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, no volition need be exerted. Let my mind be concentrated. It is natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is concentrated. For one who is concentrated, no volition need be exerted. Let me know and see things as they really are. It is natural the one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, No volition need be exerted. Let me be disenchanted and dispassionate. It is natural the one who knows and sees things as they really are is disenchanted and dispassionate. For one who is disenchanted and dispassionate, no volition need be exerted. Let me realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is natural 
the one who is disenchanted and dispassionate realizes the knowledge and vision of liberation. Thus, bhikkhus, the knowledge and vision of liberation is the purpose and benefit of disenchantment and dispassion. Disenchantment and dispassion are the purpose and benefit of the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The knowledge and vision of things as they really are is the purpose and benefit of concentration. Concentration is the purpose and benefit of pleasure. Pleasure is the purpose and benefit of tranquility. Tranquility is the purpose and benefit of rapture. Rapture is the purpose and benefit of joy. Joy is the purpose and benefit of non-regret. And non-regret is the purpose and benefit of virtuous behavior. Thus because one stage flows into the next stage, one stage fills up the next stage from going for going from the near shore to the far shore. <coughs> so it's a lovely piece and so often you know I mean, reviewing the Buddha's teachings and one of the uh, encouragements he gives to in teaching is always to teach step by step Uh, teach with the way in mind in other words keep bearing in mind step by step how does does this lead out of suffering Mm. teach with a mind bent on compassion Teach without disparaging oneself and others. Teach without seeking gain. Mm. These are important things to I always like to consider. Mm. Teach step by step. Teach with the way in mind. Mm. Mm. So it's you know it's not just the one thing one shot, one piece experience. Uh, it's not about any one, not about mindfulness, it's not about concentration, it's not about purity of conduct, but it's about how they all flow together. This lovely sense of the flowing, the fullness, the reaching. It's not about uh, external behavior purely, nor is it about internal cultivation. It's about how they link up. How external behavior links up. Uh, And so important to, above all, get the sense of linking, connecting, staying connected to it all. And then things flow. The word is dhammata. Dhammata 
which means natural or in accordance with nature. That itself is a very uh, lovely term, in the sense of something that's just like trees, leaves, sky, rain, bodies. Uh, it goes from that level right through to human nature and even the nature of liberation. These things are natural in that they are uh, not contrived, abstract, contrived by human artifice, but they stand by themselves. They support themselves. They also, like everything in nature, they feed and support everything else. Just like a tree. A tree is probably the one of the model citizens of the planet. It's, uh, even when it's uh, falling apart, it still supports creatures. Yeah. So you see something like that as, a, as an image, just the connectedness and the way that whatever we do, however we connect to our ground, and then whatever we bring forth, we spread it. It's like the tree breathes out. Yeah. And without this, uh, there really isn't a flowing and a, and, a, and a progress that's just uh, holding on to bits and pieces. And however we try to stick them together, they don't fit together unless there's that natural, natural flow. However excellent one is in learning, it doesn't fit unless it flows into practice. However skillful and determined one is in terms of focusing, it doesn't flow unless there's proper reflection, appreciation, enjoyment. Mm. Why is the process, as we look at that, really taking it from, uh, you know, morality, joy, pleasure, tranquility, happiness, you know, connecting to, uh, from, you know, aspects of behavior that we might consider in terms of you know rights and wrongs into hedonic experiences and how true inner happiness leads to what we don't normally associate with happiness concentration and knowledge what's this going to do with pleasure you know (laughs) yeah and yet it has to because these are all very natural and meaningful things for humans. Hmm. We're trying to really fulfill the human experience. Uh, And the human experience is fulfilled when these all link up quite naturally. Because of course we can obtain great pleasure from you know, watching baseball or uh, things of this nature. But it doesn't, it's not the kind of pleasure that naturally comes from freedom, from uh, regret or immoral, moral behavior. So it, isn't, it doesn't work because it's just take pleasure on its own. It's not good enough. It's pleasure that comes through the body, through gladness, through joy, through freedom from remorse. Yeah, this is the good stuff. It links up that way. Mm-hmm.
what is it that enables that, that linking, that, that consequence? Why is it sometimes that people do act with considerable degree of moral attunement and yet don't feel joy, don't feel happiness, don't feel tranquility? Mm. What is it that, why, what's happening? Or what isn't happening? What is the missing piece? Notice in this sequence there's some significant missing pieces. One of them is mindfulness. Doesn't appear there. You know, the great, uh, you know, holy dhamma of mindfulness isn't there. Well, what happened to that? <laughs> we might say mindfulness is there, uh, in, you know, as that which does the, the linking, by bearing this in mind, by bearing uh, uh, the qualities of virtuous behavior, by sustaining them in mind, taking them deeply into mind, then joy arises. quality of deep attention, yoni somunisikara, which means you turn your attention to something, you ponder its meaning, you take in how it affects you, you take in how it affects you, you take in your actions, how they're affecting you, you consider it, take it deeply, listen to how it affects you. Then when it begins to, you get the effect of feeling, I have no, you know, I have no regret about today. Really. Now we can all carry kind of shadow regrets and dissonances and so on. And yeah, that has to be addressed. But what I'm encouraging here is first of all, Find the nature, find the baseline, find your home ground, forest, refuge. We're in a forest, refuge. First take refuge. Where is refuge found? Forest, nature. Hmm? And then so that, yeah, we have all these kind of, kind of dissonances, uh, um, pains, um, things we're concerned about. And you can't just kind of brush it all off as irrelevant to your practice. But until one has found the flow of natural Dhamma, we just keep coming back into these topics again and again with no real resolution. You keep going back to our issues, our doubts, our concerns, our whatever, yeah, yeah, it has to be addressed, but we can't address it just by, you know, slamming into it one more time. You've got to find the taproot of Dhamma and stay with that, let that feel the refreshment of that. So you have a resource to do this practice because it can't be done from our normal strategizing self. Otherwise, 
surely we would have, our lives would have been impeccable and peaceful by now. <laughs> now it's really turning, finding this taproot of Dhamma, of nature. And our nature uh, proceeds from, we say, material nature into human nature and into uh, sublime nature and into the nature of transcendence. We go beyond or through the human experience with its uh, social and relational and uh, Embodied, embodied, embodied qualities. Mm. You can't skip it. You have to come through that, heal it, and then we can move through to something that enlarges our awareness. Doesn't dismiss the human, but it moves through that, and we gain perspective on the human. So we're no longer. Uh, caught in the limitations of it. It's death, separation from the loved, uh, self and others, duties and responsibilities, how these things can snag us. You know. So we start just really turning to the tap root. And uh, this is the f- one of the function of deep attention, profound attention, or sometimes it's called wise attention. Good yoni. So yoni means the source or the origin, the heart, the core. We're going to the source. Um, manasikara means attention. It means the act of manas, the activity of manas, and manas is the attention um, seeker, the attention definer, that which sustains a boundary of attention. Mm. Has no, by itself, the quality of manas is like like the lens of a flashlight or the lens of a camera. It frames that, attend to that. That's what it does. It's got no particular uh, opinion of its own. It just forms a frame. It's a natural function, manasikara. It doesn't have any feeling. Uh, But then you you frame something. And it says, make your framing carefully. Frame up things carefully. Uh, Connect the right dots. And of course, we can link up. We can frame life as the ongoing catastrophe, life as you know, future past, life and ourselves in various uh, ways, our physical form, our relational sense, our lifestyle, our job, our whatever. There's a particular kind of framing that really supports liberation, if you want liberation. And the framing is, uh, what's happening now 
what's arising now? What about suffering and non-suffering now? How's that happening now? We put aside for this particular purpose our jobs, our, our conventional selves, because these are not the tap root. This is not the deep depths of the matter. These are things that affect us deeply, and yet, of course, we recognize that yeah, any day we can change our job, we go to another country, we could, you know, it's all pretty much um, surface stuff. Some of it is very notional. Yeah. The future and the past. Notional. We live in that frame. Often we are framing our lives in that sense. How was I? How, how will I be? What can I be? What should I be? Why am I? What will I be? What was I? And future past. You know, well, what's that? You know, uh, regret, expectation, anxiety, nostalgia, worry. Mm. Not a useful frame. Can't say it's completely irrelevant. You get to your calendar and you so on, what you're doing next year and so on has its relevance for certain things but not for liberation it doesn't it's uh, when you go into deeply attend to that experience is it possible to sustain an impression of the future without some kind of agitation without well maybe but then perhaps well maybe could should I or maybe no and that might be perhaps but then again Oh no, that's going to happen. What happens when I'm 80? And so on. Is it possible to really sustain the impression of the future without some agitation? Does it bring... Or, I wonder where we are, if I could only get to that. If I could get to that. If I could get to that stage by the end of the retreat. If I could get... It's agitation, isn't it? So you know, it's a very you know positive future that we're looking for, and you feel it directly. Actually, even these very positive and worthwhile, beautiful, but if it's in the future, there's agitation in it. So it's not useful. You want to frame things in that way. The trees have no future, and yet they keep producing a future. The future happens naturally, out of the present. The present causes and conditions are fruitful, the fruit will arise. Yeah. You stand underneath an apple tree and saying, come on apples, come on apples, we want apples. <laughs> you know, then after a while you get apples, you think, oh great, it worked. No, it just... <laughs> It was going to happen anyway, you know. So we think, no, that kind of volition isn't isn't uh, necessary or even helpful. But it is very helpful to 
you know, tap into the the Dhamma, and then these the fruitions, well, you know, they come, they arise, the present is continually unfolding. How useful is it to sustain the impression of how one was? Is it possible to sustain an impression of how one was without some kind of tremble of agitation? If only I didn't. If only I had. If only I hadn't. I wish I'd started earlier. Oh, why didn't I? It was so nice then. And now? Yeah. <laughs> is it possible? Yeah, is it? Because it's just, uh, you know, is it possible to sustain an impression you know, of oneself without some kind of agitation? Well, I'm a good, good guy, but you know, if only I was a little less of this, a bit more of that. What do other people think of me anyway? Have I done have I done well enough? Are they just being nice, or do people have I really doing any good, or are people just too polite to say, tell me the real, honest truth about myself? Or am I being hard on myself? Perhaps I should not be so hard on myself. Or maybe I'm just being honest. I should develop more kindness towards myself. That's why I need to do. How do I develop kindness towards myself? Where does it come from? How do I get it? Perhaps I'm not a very kind person, so I don't be kind to myself. <laughs> so, even the, you know, well intent, good intentions, still that frame. Yes, it's a. Is it possible to sustain it without some kind of agitation? Other people. Hmm? Sam, Susan. What happened to him? I think I offended her. Is it possible to sustain impressions of other people? Hold them in your mind without some kind of framing it up, defining them, without some kind of agitation. Mm. But what is possible is to contemplate agitation. Uh, causes and conditions for it. And the causes and conditions it doesn't arise around, say, I have sustained <coughs> harmlessness today. Harmlessness. No living creature has been destroyed by me, deprived of livelihood. No living creature has been given pain by me. No living creature need fear me. How beautiful. 
sort of sustained freedom from intoxication. There are many beings who really wish to and do use intoxicants to deal with the difficulties, the stresses, the boredom, so forth, social things. I've managed to stay free from that. My mind, I've looked, I've witnessed my mind without dolling it up, without dumbing it down. How noble. Uh, something you can respect. Just, uh, you know, this is when really, you could say you're talking about yourself, we are really talking about qualities and the appreciation of qualities that, well, it's not mine, we all did that today. Now, oh, probably had silly thoughts and difficult feelings and unpleasant emotions and felt sleepy or restless and so forth. Frame up virtue. Deeply attend to it. Yeah. Now, as, as you're doing it, notice, yeah, I want to do that. I like that. I enjoy that sense of, you know, no one, no creature need fear me. No one need be concerned that I'm going to take anything from them. People can live with their doors unlocked. People can put their bags down freely where I am. I'm not someone who takes things. Isn't that beautiful? What one is generating just through that, the qualities of trust and uh, peacefulness. So when we deeply attend to these simple qualities, uh, factors, which are coming from our relationship with the external, the yoni soul, manasikara, takes it internal. And instead of internalizing the anxiety, the pain, the violence, of the world, we internalize the beauty, the simple natural beauty of the Dhamma. And this is not, you know, this isn't kind of copyright of some religion. This is human nature. Because when we touch into it, we feel perhaps authentic because it, it fills and nourishes us just as nature does we feel nourished filled by the quality of freedom from regret uh, one lives with a heart inclined towards shrinking away from harming violating abusing manipulating, cheating, stealing others. How beautiful. Not that difficult to do. Sometimes difficult to really appreciate it. I mean, you think, oh, it's just doing the thing, you know.
So Yonisomnisikara is framing up something skillful that then you can deeply internalize so that it uh, gives you nourishment. Staying with that, bearing that in mind, is the function of mindfulness. You pick something up, you establish it, and then you place mindfulness on it. Mindfulness bearing it in mind, staying with it. And uh, one bears that Dhamma in mind. This is one of the ways mindfulness is defined. One bears that Dhamma in mind. One stays with it. Now it's it's, uh, relatively easy in some ways to define mindfulness, bearing something in mind, staying with it. Perhaps uh, what we need to often flesh out and fulfill is what we mean by mind. What do you mean by bearing something in mind? Where are you bearing it? <coughs> now, attention, Manasikara is different word from mindfulness. So mindfulness is, is not attention, not the same thing, although it's closely related. Attention is the framing up, mindfulness is sustaining. And how is that sustained? Through the fullness of mind. And we can see that uh, mind, if really you know, unpack that word, uh, we can see it refers to, we can refers to many, you know, syn- synonyms. There's the intellect, there's the heart, psyche, soul, spirit. Mind has imaginative levels, mind has experience of imagination, mood, impression, perception, attitude, inclination. Many, many features to it. The uh, simple classification is mind as the rationation, the ability to measure and uh, form a concept. Hmm. That's one we form a concept. Uh, And then this forming of a concept is then uh, handled by manas, by the attention, by the thinking mind. It also uh, forms a perception. Perception is more like uh, an impression than a concept. It has a feeling to it. Perception is always associated with some kind of you get it. It's not just an idea. You get it. It touches you. And it's associated with contact. Being contacted by. So that also is an aspect of mind. So when we are, and attitude, view, viewpoint, attitude, where we're coming from, that's an aspect of mind. You might say the aspect of view is the aspect of mind that sees things as a certain mindset. 
certain way of reviewing something. So we're talking about gaining mind, uh, um, materialistic mind. Um, yeah. And so uh, mindfulness as a path factor comes along having developed from right view and right view is the attitude the perspective that sees the significance of cause and effect yeah. as an un, as an ongoing chain through lifetimes so it sees experience as a flow ripe with potential meaningful potential that stays with us consequences stay with us for good and for bad so mindfulness is also tuned in to the to that because it's tuned into the fullness of mind and it arises dependent on right view uh, right action, the sila, uh, right effort, and there's a sense of conscious application towards what's skillful, as in deep attention. The mindfulness arises having come through that process. Itself is part of a stream. In fact, there's not a single quality of the Dhamma that is not connected to another. You can't just take a one piece and say that's it. It's always everything implies everything else. It's just like nature itself. It's a system. So when we come into the fullness of mind and we're bearing something in mind, we're staying with it, we're attuning to the ethical qualities of that experience. We're, we're attuned to how it's affecting us. We're attuned to whether it's, take, whether it's bright or dark in its nature. When I say bright or dark, I mean is it, is it that which gives source a, a quality of light, brightness, um, leading to happiness, or is it something that is dark, moody, gloomy, leading to unhappiness? And we, so when you're mindful, we're tuned into that potential. We're tuned into perception, how things feel for us. And we're tuned into how we can define, and it covers all of that. Because of this, there is the linking of one stage to the next, without having to, oh, I've done that, and now I'll do this. I've done my seal a bit, okay, that was last week, and now I do my samadhi bit this week, and then who knows, eventually the panya bit will come in. Because instead of mindfulness, that's tuning into the flow of mind, everything gets referred back to the self. And even if the self is doing good things, praiseworthy things, making a great effort, it hasn't actually tapped into nature yet. So it hasn't got that essential flow. It's like dancing without the music. 
you know, you can clump around, but you don't really get it until you heard the, until you get the music. You don't get the rhythm and the and the graciousness until you get the music. So and this is, you know, the purpose of these two factors: uh, deep attention, wise attention, and mindfulness is to frame up, look into this, stain this, how does this touch the heart, how does it really open and cause your full potentials of your mind to unfold, having done so, then you sustain that, you, you feel it, you know it, you feel it, you're wise about it, mindfulness has a certain wisdom faculty in it. This is what how we bear things in mind. And then things will flow. So when we contemplate and we bear in mind and we attend wisely and we consider such things as uh, skillful behavior, skillful uh, morality, skillful attitudes, and you can uh, expand that, you know, from precepts to qualities such as kindness, compassion, generosity, and so forth. Everything that deals with the behavioral realm is an important, uh, necessary um, cultivation. It's for, and the constant motto with this is, it's for my welfare, it's for certain other people's welfare, it's conducive to Nibbana. Now those are the three checkpoints. So my welfare, for other people's welfare, and it leads to, it's conducive to Nibbana. Nibbana, we can call it the unplugging, the dispassion, disenchantment, the disconnect from the dissonant, the sorrowful, the unsatisfying, the compulsive, the craving, the aversion, the fascinations, and so forth, the attachments, just how that can gently evoked, supported. So with, uh, when we really attend to, feel deeply, notice fully qualities of our here and now behavior, what we're doing now, then we begin to unplug the experience of regret. We nibbana it. We cause it to cease. We send it to cessation, not through cutting it off, rejecting it, denying it, but just because it no longer fits. Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit our dumber body. Doesn't fit 
where our intentions and our heart, our core is. So it, it, fall, it tends to fall out. <coughs> this is very much the um, fulcrum of practice is by potentizing and deepening and enriching uh, that which is skillful, the unskillful fades, falls off. By enriching and deepening potentizing our beauty, our graciousness, then distances fall off. There isn't room for them. This is uh, another beautiful feature of the Dhamma. And as you contemplate it, as you consider, you know, bear it in mind, check it out internally, externally. By and large, when you scan the field of people who meditate, do they get more violent or less violent? Generally, less violent. Unless, you know, it's to deal with the size of Zafus or something important. Or how much peanut butter's on the breakfast table. Then perhaps little ripples occur. But by and large, they do not enjoy hunting, shooting, fishing, machine gunning other people <laughs> this is you know, this is this uh, you know do they in by and large do they tend to uh, find themselves needing less cons- consumption or more consumption generally they go oh I like to live more simply pretty standard I like to live more calmly don't like to accumulate a lot of things not interested in all that tend to quite and this isn't because, you know, it's naughty or disallowed, but just because, no, it doesn't seem to fit anymore. It doesn't really get me going anymore. It doesn't work anymore. You notice this right across the field. Independent of people's personal karma and people's personalities. See, this is an abiding feature of Dhamma. And we come into that. Say, so, yeah. Now, you know, the personal self you know, finds it uh, it's always got this kind of incredible novella st- story going on <laughs> and uh, yeah, okay, you know, we have to de- we have to transmute that and transform that, but y- you can't do it unless you've really deepened and potentized uh, Dhamma in yourself. You see, you say, yes, yes, but not right now. Till I can see it clearly as it is. And seeing things clearly as they are depends upon Samadhi. Samadhi depends upon Happiness. Happiness depends upon the body feeling steady, balanced, comfortable in itself. Hmm. Body feeling comfortable and steady in itself depends upon gladness, joy, and so on. Hmm. So, to see things as they really are, to be able to really 
redress our world. We need that, Samadhi. You can't jump it. But in a way, we're already doing that, you know, by tuning into the taproot of Dhamma. It's often um, quite a, quite a oh, common for the, the source of our pain to have a magnetic pull. You know, you get a thorn in your finger, what part of your body do you think you find yourself most aware of? <laughs> How free from pain your ears are? Now your elbow is just fine. <laughs> Small your back's really quite at ease. No, that finger jumps right in. Huge finger with a thorn in it. <laughs> Suddenly it becomes you know, enormous. And we start to you know, remember, you know, Oh, and if only this pain was in my finger, I'd feel okay. Let's get that thorn out. Thorn comes out of the finger. Oh, it's funny now the knees hurt. <laughs> 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 or, or there's that problem with my, you know, my husband or my son or something. Else. Suddenly that comes in. How incredible attraction there is to pain. <laughs> yeah. Because it's the peace that we so deeply wish to resolve. And it keeps rushing in. Dukkha. <laughs> keeps kind of rushing in. Uh, but it has, it's like a, 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 has a magnetic force to it. But unfortunately, just that, just being flooded with these disagreeable impressions um, and you know, is not skillful because you're not actually resourced enough to manage them. We need sustained mindfulness, the taproot, the flow of Dhamma, the Samadhi to really, you know, before we can fully change, turn things around. Now we may think that, of course, when you use a word like samadhi, it's sort of a wow, you know. And uh, I think I had something like that once, five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when really everything is totally set up and you sort of shut down and everything's fine and really good. Something like that, you know. But if you tap into the fullness of mind, you follow that stream of it, and you build it up, then it will flow, it will come quite naturally of itself. What it can't do, you can't say, let me have samadhi, I'm going to get some samadhi. I need to have samadhi. And it's true, in a way. It's not that we don't need samadhi, but approaching it from I want the samadhi so I can sort myself out. 
isn't going to work. It's the self again saying, you know, give me that samadhi. I'll, I'll pay for it. <laughs> I'll work at it, honestly. You know, I'll be good. But whatever deal it wants to do, and, you know, if we haven't fulfilled the necessary factors, it's not going to flow naturally. We might, in fact, get it. You know, and it might be that in doing that, those, those factors kind of line up by themselves. But the sure way is to develop the factors. You know, well, again, freedom from regret, freedom from remorse, being able to enjoy. You, know, you see how that comes through in that sutta. The feeling of may no, I need exert no more volition. I need there need be no more volitional effort. May joy or gladness arise in me. Just how beautiful that sense is. You know, no push. Yeah, let it arise. What's that? What does that? Hmm. This is enjoyment. Another very important quality of mind. The ability to enjoy. Which means we deeply appreciate, we open to, we sensitize to, we drink in. And this is an effort. It's a. It's a. Um, it's an application. But it's the application. It's very much about deepening into the present. And normally, when we think of effort and application, we will tend to. I imagine most of us will go to our workplace again and try to get something done and this and that but we'll miss out on the essential quality of enjoying enjoying is what makes any job into play it becomes a craft becomes a delight anything we do when we deeply attend to it even you know, sometimes I think I enjoy sweeping. Sweep, you know, no, I'm not talking about body sweep, I'm talking about, you know, broom brush, that thing. <laughs> not scanning the cosmos with my mind, but actually just getting hold of a broom and brush. It's a pleasant thing. Soft feeling to it, nice, feel the bristles brushing across a path, a nice movement of the body doing this, it's not... Like hammering or violent or noise, got a soft sound to it. Oh, I can open to that. And think, yeah, well, you know, I swept a path, I swept a hall, and I enjoyed it. It wasn't hurry up and get this thing done. Uh, so as I can get on to the next bit. No, because then we're not really enjoying, you're not opening to the experience. And it's just start to bear in mind consider mm, a little bit radical but if you can't enjoy do you need to do it 
What's your motivation in doing something if you can't enjoy it? Just consider that. Why do we do things? How are we doing things? Obligation, duty, pay. People want me to, I suppose I better. What's that? I better go to this so I don't look bad. What's that? I better turn up on time because it says so. What's that? How much of... And yet, we can. I enjoy the sense of sharing time. I enjoy the sense of the company of others, fellow practitioners. I enjoy the sense of uh, doing something that in some way is a benefit. Just tidying a hall. I enjoy it. I could go in and oh, get this thing done. I'm the one who has to do this, I suppose. I really wanted to do yogi job washing up, but I got stuck with this. I'm supposed to get it done. Whatever I've got to do in ten minutes, you know, half an hour after breakfast. You know. <laughs> but then, we, you know, that sense of um, it's the same thing could be one or the other, couldn't it? And when you look at it like that, how much? What about meditation? Is that is is that something we approach with a mind that's at least attuned? to the possibility of this could be a time for enjoyment. Mm. Now, it doesn't have to be. As we all know, we perfectly free to be as miserable as you like. And <laughs> make hard work of it and set up goals that you're not going to achieve and compulsions to be something or the other and fight with yourself for an hour <laughs> or we could make it something and that would that would work you could frame it up like that and something is kind of does that you know shocked pained state we attune to the pain and the discomfort rather than framing up the pleasurable the delightful the heartwarming qualities <coughs> in what we do. So it, when you train yourself to frame properly, to deeply attend, to sustain mindfulness, to take things in, you see the possibility of your mind unfolding, blooming into some to the ordinariness of life, ordinariness of human life, which suddenly becomes a place of great warmth and joy. Mm. And this is uh, how we know this surely is the stream, the flow. If there's any stream entering, this is the stream to enter. <laughs> You know, where's this going to go? It's not going to go anywhere bad. Impossible. Mm. And it really, you can't rush the stream. You can't push it. But you, if you're 
get into that, follow it through, take it into your body. Once it's become established through your behavior, take it into your body. And that is a very important process. May my body feel refreshed and relaxed. May my body feel those inner tensions and agitations. May that the quality of this uh, beautiful mind radiate through the body. May I frame that up too, carefully, into simple natural form, breathing in and out. And this, this then adds, the body then contributes its own deep strength and vitality. And this is how samadhi comes around, it's the unity, the unification of body and mind. They can all contribute. The stream then becomes much richer, deeper and stronger. And this is the basis of the natural progress of the Dhamma. So if you like to stretch your legs, then uh, uh, feel free. If you'd like to do some walking or retire for the evening, that's your choice. If you'd like to stay and sit for a while, I'll be here for another half an hour or so just to um, wrap things up. I don't feel like going anywhere now. but So if you want to join me, that's fine. If you want to go somewhere else, that's also your choice. Thank <laughs> you.